0: For those of you I don't know, I'm Pamela Grafton. I've been in Oxford about 18 years. Went to Ole Miss and lived in Memphis. Um, Have three kids. Cole is 22, lives in Montana. Addie is a sophomore at Auburn. And then Chase uh, is back there. She's a junior at Oxford. So, um, Anyway, excited to teach and excited to y'all are here. So we are going to keep plugging through Colossians tonight. The second half, Anna, well I guess Anna taught last week on the first half of Colossians. So we're starting tonight in verse 15. This is a super well-known passage, um, but it's really known as like a doxology or this beautiful poem of Paul describing who Jesus is. Um, talk, it's just, it's almost like the gospel in a little box. It's just so straightforward, and we're going to walk through it tonight, but it's just talking about who, God, who Jesus is, that he is God, he is powerful, powerful over everything, and that he is sufficient enough to save sinners. So it's just a beautiful snapshot of the gospel. One author described it as a foundational Christian truth spelled out in a grand fashion and with practical relevance. (coughs) And Paul knows, and as Anna talked about in her intro week, this is a pretty new church, and he knows that they're going to be hit with all kinds of false teaching or tests and challenges, and he wants them to have solid footing first and to really grasp who Jesus is um, so that they can be firm in their faith as they grow. He knows there are going to be people hitting him with with both false teaching and the idea that they need to add to this, that it can't be this simple. There's got to be more that you have to do or you have to follow this rule or this law or complicate the gospel. He's both confronting that heresy but also directing their focus upward, and that's what he wants us to do too. The more we know him and really grasp him and study his truths of who Jesus is, then we can shut out the other voices. You know, you've heard many a Bible teachers say, you know, the people that hunt down counterfeit money, they don't study all the fake ones. They just study the real dollar bill so they can tell the difference. And that's exactly what Paul wants them and us to do. <clears throat> Paul wanted this new church and us to understand that our worship of Christ will be a natural outflow from grasping the comprehensive nature of his reign. And it should consume every area of our lives. So I'm going to read the passage for us and then we'll kind of walk through it step by step. So starting in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So in this passage, Paul's laying out for us really the two themes that you're going to see throughout this whole book. And that is that Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. Um, so I love when I see something like that to teach on, I just kind of chew on that one word for a while and kind of look it up and Google it. And so looking and digging into the word supreme a little bit and thinking about that, first of all, in just its basic definition, Webster says it's highest in rank or authority, highest in degree or quality. And really... God made us to long for the supreme. He made us to crave that or to want the best or to want this higher authority that is above all. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind when you say the word supreme is like, what's the pizza that has all the best stuff on it? The supreme, (laughs) which I don't like. I'd pick off the vegetables, but, um, you know, that's the best. Um, you think about the Supreme court, you know, the highest court in the land that, that, we sort of take some comfort that there's this highest level of authority, <clears throat> the Supreme Court. What was amusing to me, I didn't know, maybe some of you do, literally when I just type in the word Supreme, I had to scroll, I mean, a couple of times before I could even get to the Webster de- definition, because there's now this new clothing brand called Supreme. Do you all know this brand? Oh, you oh, all have college kids in here, yeah. Kids, sorry, you're not kids. But um, I did not know this clothing brand, <laughs> but it, I mean, it's a big deal. Um, and so I read about a little bit about it and read this interview with one of the designers and he said, what we do is a mindset and if Supreme represents authenticity for certain fans, even subconsciously, the obsession comes down to just that. It's as much about what the clothes represent as the quality and the design of them. So he's even admitting like, they're not that great, yeah. <laughs> the you know, the quality's not amazing, but we call them Supreme, so they're desired. You, too, can have a Supreme sweatshirt. I promise. Can't make this up. Plain white sweatshirt, a little red box right here with the white letters. Oh, look, they're like. Um, now, I will say, do you have one? What if somebody have one? Wouldn't that be great? Um, because one of the ones I found, and maybe it was a special brand, I mean, a special vintage something, $2,300 for this sweatshirt. that just said the word Supreme on it. Now you can find knockoffs, like, for $200 if you want one. But anyway, that's exactly what that designer of even that clothing brand, he knew what he was doing when he picked that name. It's the name. Like we kind of crave for that supreme. And God made us to do that, made us in such a way that we want that. And the thing is what Paul is saying here is that Christ is supreme. He just is. Um, Exodus 23 and 4 says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image or in the form of anything In heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And that's the bottom line for non-believers or even some of us sitting here. It's one of those things that even if you choose not to believe it, you're like, eh, I don't think so. It's just true. It's just a standard to to which we can set the course of our lives. And it just doesn't change. Um, The closest example I thought of that was, Like, and I can still picture learning this in, like, fifth grade social studies in Memphis. North is just north. You cannot change that. Do we agree? Like, something has to set the direction of everything else. You know, I would have used a compass example. We don't use compasses anymore. We just have it on our phone, right, on the Google Maps or whatever. But that's based off on just the bottom line assumption, north is north. Like, you can't change that. And in the same way, Christ is just supreme, um, in May I drove my son Cole out to Montana to move him out there amazing experience 1900 hours I think 27 hours of driving and I mean, I couldn't have made it there without our map on the phone I mean I sort of knew conceptually I'm just going to get out of Oxford and I'm going to go left you know for a long way <laughs> like I'm just going to keep driving until I cross a few states um, but we would have been lost without that, um, the map, and, and that is based on the fact that north is north. If Cole and I had said, eh, we don't believe that. We're going to try our own way, or we're going to do this, or we don't think that's right, and we're going to turn the phone upside down, I'd still be driving. It's just a foundational baseline to set your life on, and that that is Christ is supreme, and he rules over all. And if we ignore that, our things get out of whack. Um... You know, sometimes are there areas in our life where we are trying to maintain that control and failing to submit to that supremacy or that authority? I know I certainly struggle with this at times. You know, we have certain areas of our lives that we say, okay, God, you can have these, but you can't have my finances. Or you can have my, I don't know, you can have my Sunday to Thursday, but the weekend's mine. Or you can have have my work life or something else, but... I'm in charge of my kids. Don't don't mess with my kids. You know, and, and it's just out of whack um, when we don't put Christ on the throne where he deserves to be. <clears throat> a few years ago, we taught on the name, the different names of God. And to me, one of my favorites is just Yahweh. It just means I, I am. Like, he just is. And it's a beautiful truth to cling to. A few weeks ago, I was at my in-laws, and I don't ever look at the Message Bible. Any of y'all have that or ever look at it? It's so neat. Um, and so anyway, I've looked up a lot of these passages in that. And I want to read this. I thought it was so beautifully said. <clears throat> it says, He was supreme at the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme at the end. How great is that image, leading the resurrection parade? I love that. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken, dislocated pieces in the universe, people and things, get properly fixed in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death on the cross. I love that. So that is Christ is supreme. That's kind of just the overlay of this chapter. And in that supremacy, we're going to look at four components of, of Jesus and how he relates to And how Paul describes him as the image of God, his relation to creation, and the church, and then our salvation. Write down, just for the sake of time, I'm not going to read it, but um, to go back and read later, Hebrews 1 through 5, I think, is almost a paraphrase of the same section. It's beautiful. It describes Jesus as the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, seated at the right hand of the majesty. So first let's look at that Jesus is God. <clears throat> we see that in verse 15, that he is the image of the invisible God. And then again in 19, that for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And what a loving gift of our God in heaven, who knew we needed something more tangible. We needed something to see, to sort of grasp his character. So he gave us Jesus to, to get a glimpse of him, to see what he values and how he treats people, how he responds to things, because we know so much of what Jesus did was so countercultural back then and would be today. But he gives us a glimpse of who God is, who he's drawn to, the people he chose to seek out and talk to, the sinners and the tax collectors. <clears throat> the word here in Greek is the word, same word where we get the word icon. But this is not to be misunderstood that Jesus is kind of a replica or similar to God. Um, he is the manifestation of God with a precise and exact correspondence. He is the true embodiment of His nature. Um, John 1:14 says, "And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known." <clears throat> I'm going to flip over and read to John 14. <clears throat> Jesus' own words describing this to his disciples following him. He said to Philip, well, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I'm in John 14, 8, sorry. Jesus said to them, to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. (coughs) Calvin warned, he said, we must be careful not to look for him anywhere else. For apart from Christ, whatever offers itself to us in the name of God will turn out to be an idol. And it's just beautiful that He said, Jesus is this exact replica of God, not an image, not just a someone sort of acting like him. <coughs> I wish I had planned ahead to use the overhead projectors. I forgot we were gonna be in here, but so fun tidbit. So this is a picture of, Chase knows what this is. This is a picture of my mom and Elvis, okay? Um, in Daytona Beach when he was just starting to tour. Um, they really just met on the beach, but we all love this picture because it looks like they're dating. He's hugging her like they're dating. <coughs> So I keep this kind of on an end table in my house because it's just kind of a fun conversation piece. My sister found it years ago and framed it for us. But why do we even bother with a picture? Because, like, it's Elvis, right? He's probably one of the most famous people, if you interviewed people, to say, like, we still, still celebrate his birth week and his death week. And, you know, he's Elvis. It's the biggest icon. Um, and, and if I think of the word impersonator... That comes to my mind. Is it not yours? I think they're more Elvis impersonators than probably any other celebrity. <coughs> but, but what is, oh, and even, who's seen the Elvis movie? Did y'all see the Elvis movie this summer? i got to get it right. Austin Butler, that cute actor that played him, who was so good and I think going to win an Academy Award for it. I mean, he talked like him, he danced like him, he sang like him, he looked like him, because I'm sure he'd studied him. But I dug into his background on Wikipedia, so of course it's totally accurate. <clears throat> um, <laughs> <laughs> but he was, you know, born in California, grew up a teen actor, his, had parents, and, you know, his upbringing was nothing like Elvis. His perspective was probably nothing like Elvis from the small town in Mississippi. You know, he'd, he could look just like Elvis, um, and we loved watching him pretend to be Elvis. But we don't know that he responded like Elvis. We don't know that he loved people like Elvis did or hated, you know, people like Elvis did or what Elvis felt about certain things. He was just an actor. It's an imprint. And what Paul is making sure that we know here is that's not what Jesus was. He was not just showing us what he thought God ought to be like or what we, a nice picture to have of, oh, that's God. And he was God. It was an exact imprint of God's nature. And that's so beautiful, I think, for us to cling to. And why does that even matter? It's because it was our glimpse of God in these first four books of the New Testament, a beautiful picture of what God would look like and how he would and what he valued and what he loved and most importantly how he felt about us sinners that needed a savior so secondly I'm going to look at Jesus related to creation and I'm going to go back to verse 15 no I'm not yes I am He was the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the... That's where I'm stopping. Okay. So first, I want to point out, it calls him the firstborn of all creation, but it's key to note, Jesus was not created. Um, God did not create Jesus before everything else. He, He... Like I said, he just is. He was. He always was. He was not created. So it doesn't imply um, chronologically the firstborn. In Scripture, a lot in the Old Testament, firstborn refers to just a place of prestige and authority in the family, just sort of the highest position. But as the expressed revelation of God, as we just talked about, and because of his instrumental role in creation, Christ possesses the ultimate authority of Lord over all of creation. Uh, my mom was an English teacher, a grammar teacher, so I'm all about sentences and parts of speech and prepositions. And so it's key to note how many different prepositions are, you know, is created by Him, um, you know, by Him. All things in heaven and earth were created through Him, for Him. It's ultimately all for His reign and glory. It identifies Him as the aim of creation. I love, one author wrote, his pre-existence and active role in creation are bookended in eternity. By his glory as the ultimate goal, he is the alpha and the omega, the first and the last. And there's a universal aspect to this rule. I don't know if you caught it, but the word all, or a same translation of that word, is used eight times in this small little section I just read. And that every single part of creation is to find their fulfillment and their consummation in Christ. That's the only place. And as I've chewed on this this week, this is one of those concepts I think that's so abstract and almost too big to process, but I think it warrants a little attention to try to do so because and what Paul wanted them to grasp and us to grasp is that when we truly recognize that, that Jesus is at the center of creation and it consumes our focus, everything else is put in our in proper perspective, <clears throat> You know, I find, I think, when our lives are out of balance, it's because we've put something else in the center where Christ should be. Um, I've heard the challenge before from a teacher of, you know, what are the things that keep you up at night? That's often where you can find an idol or something that maybe you've put in the center instead of where Christ should be. You know, whether it's our children, work, relationships, a goal, accolades we're trying to achieve, whatever it is. But Christ is, I love this quote too, Christ is the sphere in which it was created and continues to exist. You know, Paul says here in verse 17, I think, by him all things hold together. He continues to sustain creation. You know, God didn't just create it all and hope it works out. You know, he left Christ um, and and they're still holding all of creation. Um, Anna used a great analogy this morning in a Bible study. You know, you picture the old, the sculpture of Atlas, you know, the huge brawny with the whole world on his shoulders. That's what we sometimes feel like. You know, we feel like we've got to manage this whole world. That is not what this is saying either. God is not this mighty, I mean, he is mighty, you know what I mean, but like bearing the world on his shoulders. No, this says he holds it in his hand. He's so powerful. All of creation, all of the world is just in his hand. But yet we think sometimes we have to carry it, the whole world, um, and solve it all. The good news is, and the, the, Beautiful part of that is like, he's got it without us. You know, um, we can rest in that. I love this quote. It says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain over our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Um, we can rest in that, that we don't have to take charge. He's holding it all together, whether we see it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. I mean, our hearts are beating this very minute because he tells them to. These trees outside are budding, hopefully, right? Um, because he tells them to. The sun will rise in the morning because he tells it to. So I was actually went to see my son. I was flying home from Montana two weeks ago, and I was sitting in the airport, and just randomly they announced that like my flight was now going to take off from a different gate, and I just kind of got in my head. I was like, God, that's a lot to coordinate, right? You know, just how do you manage an airport and that many, can you, I was about to say, have you ever thought about that, but probably not, um, but just think about the flights and the, the bags, the bags always blow my mind, how they get to where they're supposed to be and just the, who figures all that out of what plane's going to what gate and what time and all of that. And then so in light of this lesson, I just, I mean, I just, I like to figure things out and spreadsheet everything. But I mean, that's, just, that's massive. And then I was like, okay, that's one airport. Here's a trivia fact for you. I Googled at 11 last night. You know how many airports are in the world? 41,700 airports in the world. So even that, I was like, God, that'd be a lot to coordinate. You know, and then, but then think about, I mean, think about the world. I mean, all of creation, all of the, the countries, the governments, the logistics, seven oceans. You know, it goes on and on and on. Um, <laughs> oh, 7.8 billion people in the world. Did y'all know that? Um, that's a lot to figure out. These kind of facts I love. My kids probably get tired whenever we go to an aquarium. It's probably one of the places where I most marvel at God's creation and it blows my mind because I'm like, why did he create so many crazy fun fish, right? I mean, are there not so many? It blows my mind. Like a yellow fish with a nose this long, like I don't understand. But oh, so there are over 35,000 species of fish. I mean, why? There are over 60,000 species of trees. I'm like, why? Because God is that great and that amazing, and he can, and he delights to do so, and to show us that majesty and that, the creativity. Can you even imagine? And, and heaven is going to be even greater than that. But it kind of blows my mind to look at. <clears throat> and so that is creation. That is what Paul is telling us, that Jesus, it, it was created through him, for him, and he holds it in his hand. You know, Jesus, God is not up in heaven Trying to spreadsheet and keep this all together. He does not have sticky notes and lists to get things done like we do. It's effortless, and he just holds it in his hand. And I think we can rest in that. I think the two takeaways from that are first of all, just awe and wonder at this creation, and also just a resting in that fact that he's in control and that there's no random, there's, there's not a coincidence, there's not something that slips through his fingers. Um, he's in control. <clears throat> I will read quickly. What time do I need to try to wrap up? Oh, not. oh we're good. Okay, so I'm going to read Psalm 148. sums us up so beautifully, I think. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens. And you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created, and he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of all the earth and all the peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. I just love that. So, next, I'm going to touch on Jesus and his relation to the church. And Paul just states it very simply here in verse 18: it says, He is the head of the body, the church. Paul affirms that Jesus is the source from which his church derives its life and its sustenance and its growth. I love that he pulls the church out separate from the rest of creation because there's an organic, intimate relationship between Christ and his church. He describes it as the head of the body. So there's just a deeper connection there than with the rest of creation. It's intimate, but it is so sovereign. Um, And this applies to both the broad corporate church, Susan Heiner, somebody used to always say like the capital C church, capital C church, um, but also our local churches, the little C churches. Um, both are important. And and why is that important to recognize that Christ is the head of that? It's because I think sometimes we expect our, these churches, the small C churches to be perfect and they just, they're not going to always be. They are groups of Jesus loving, trying to be faithful believers, but we're sinners um, and we always need to land on the fact that Christ is ahead of this church. And all of our efforts and ministries and maybe disagreements or decisions need to land with that in mind. <clears throat> um, and always go back to his sovereignty and his message and what we're doing to his glory. Um, and these aspects of his leadership over the church assume a corporate nature in the spiritual life of every believer too. Active involvement in the local church is essential to our existence, um, to, to function as members of this corporate body, the church. So I'd be remiss to not say, if you don't have a church home, um, I'd encourage you to come visit here with us on Sunday. And we would welcome you to this home. Our mission statement is that <clears throat> we have found a home um, based on a hope in Jesus Christ and we that launches a healing into Oxford and in the community. And it is a beautiful place and a beautiful place body to be a part of. So I encourage you to find that if you don't have it already. So lastly, I'm going to look at um, Jesus' relation to salvation. Really the key of this whole passage. Because he is supreme, that means he is sufficient. He is worthy and worth enough to redeem all that is broken in this world, including us. So Cole, my son, (laughs) I don't know what I talked about if I didn't have a call. Um, kidding. I got girls too. Um, but he loves loved superhero movies. And so all kinds. We spent lots of time watching and every kind of superhero movie. And I'm sure you have too, whether you have boys or not. But when you watch those movies, <clears throat> as long once you get to know the character, Spider-Man's probably his favorite. He told me he won I think that's the first movie he cried at was a Spider-Man movie. Um, <clears throat> but once you know that character and you have confidence in Spider-Man's abilities and his or superman whoever like it could be some you know tense scene with you know drama and danger and some one hanging off the roof of a building but the minute she's uh, spider-man's on the scene he you know he's coming in you can rest in that you know it's going to be okay because spider-man's coming so i think in that way paul wants us to know who christ is and his supremacy so then we can rest in the fact that he is sufficient He can save us, grasping that in the tiniest of ways of his power and his supremacy, we can rest that he is the one to reconcile all of this broken world to God. He's the only one that can do it because he made all of creation. He is the way that it will be reconciled back to God. Paul even points out in verse 21 that we were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. Um, which is hard for us to talk about. We don't like to think about that we were once that hostile against God, but it is true, and our sin keeps us that way. <coughs> but it's critical to recognize our position and our helplessness in order to appreciate the magnitude of that salvation. You know, if we don't think we need a Savior, we're, we're not. I mean, if we don't think we need saving, if we think we're okay or we can do it on our own, we're not that in awe of the one that came in to save us. With this perfect sacrifice, <clears> 2 <throat> Corinthians five nineteen says, "In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself. Only though His blood can, only through His blood can that price of redemption be paid. Our sacrifices would never be enough." And 1 Peter eighteen and nineteen says, "For you know that it was not with perish, perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, but with the precious blood of Christ." a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and hope are in God. So again, he's the only one capable of the salvation. Back in that message, where was that message quote? All the broken, dislocated pieces in the universe, people and things, get perfectly fixed in vibrant harmonies. That's us. There's not a sin beyond his salvation. There's not a person beyond his reach. Um, He is the perfect sacrifice, and he is sufficient to reconcile us back to God. Paul ends in verse 23, wanting his church, he tells them, to remain stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you've heard. Because he knows that firm footing in that, will keep them stable as life hits them, as challenges hit them, as false teaching hits them, if they're just grounded in that hope of the gospel in the, su- in the supremacy of Christ and in the sufficiency of Christ and that he is victorious in reconciling us back to God. Someone in our small group this morning used the best example. She said, she was reading this new book that's out by the, about the Ole Miss baseball team. What's it called? It starts with an R. What was it called? Yes, Resilient Rebels. Have y'all read it? The author's name is Chase. That's what reminded her to tell me this. So um, Resilient Rebels, it's about their baseball season last spring. Everybody remember it? Um, I don't want to be a spoiler, but we won. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the cute page Jo, she said, I mean, she was in Oxford. She lived it. She even literally went to Omaha. She's watched the documentaries on it. She's seen every bit of news about it. But last week, driving to Nashville with her husband, she was reading it in the car while he drove, and she said she got so invested in the book she kept hitting him. She's like, "Oh my gosh, I'm so nervous! Like, what is gonna happen? Like, you know, like she was so in the tension of the last game, and I mean, she shocked herself at how like anxious she got about like, oh, my gosh, we're gonna win!" And she was laughing. She's like, "I was in Omaha. Like, I saw it happen with my own eyes." But don't, how often do we live like that, right? We have the ending. Spoiler alert. Like, we know Jesus is sufficient, and so he wins. And he can save all of us from our sins that separate us from God. And how easily sometimes we lose sight of that, I think. You know, we we get lost in the turmoil or the hard things that are coming our way, which next week we are talking about suffering, which I challenge all of you not to, like, make up something to do next Wednesday night because you don't talk about suffering (laughs) because... Scripture has so many beautiful things to say about it, and it paints in such a different picture. But having your firm footing in Christ and who he is and his sufficiency to save you and knowing the end, that he wins and he wipes all of this away, he has defeated death, he has defeated pain, he has defeated tears. We, can, that, we should live so much more boldly because of that. Um, and I just love that. So come back next week and bring a friend. If some, you know someone that's going through something. So to wrap up, when I was working with Brian, talking about my lessons, he challenged me, he said, I always like to leave people with, like, what are the two main things you want them to walk away with, or you want them to know? And for me, it was pretty simple, and it's just those two words, because they're so easy to remember, and it's just that Christ is supreme, and he is sufficient. And again, until I studied this, I don't know that I'd ever put those two together, or really put it in such a succinct, easy way, but that's it. He He is supreme, and he is enough. And at the end of the day, that's all that matters. And whether you believe it or not, whether your friends or family or any—if anyway, its just—it's still true. He is still reigning. Um, all of creation was made for him, and he holds it all together in his hand. And because of that supremacy, his blood sacrifice was enough. He is all, and he did it all. And that's the hope of the gospel that Paul wants us to cling to. And I don't know about you, but. To me, that becomes the most critical when all these other things are stripped away, right? Or when you're at the end of your rope and the end of yourself and you don't have anything else. Um, So this summer in August, um, sort of hard to talk about, but I knew God wanted me to teach on it. So my stepfather, Jim, passed away this summer in August. My, My father died 22 years ago. And my mom was blessed with a beautiful second marriage from 70 to 80. The dearest man named Jim, both named Jim, named Jim, ironically. But this summer, Jim passed away of lung failure. And I never would have expected to be in this position, but I was by his bedside um, the last many hours of his life. And um, when you're in that position and you're at the end of everything, um, this is what matters supremacy first I could tell you it was an unreal hard thing to do but one of the richest blessings and I'm forever changed by it Um, because in that moment everything else that's it and heaven was tangible when you're telling your loved one it's okay to go like that's and you're praying for God I don't know if any of you have been in that situation but heaven is tangible If you don't have a grasp on this truth that Christ is supreme in that moment, I I don't know how you face it. Um, Everything else was gone. His career was gone. His tasks were complete. He had lived a beautiful life. The relationships he poured into were done and beautiful, but that was it. Um, He even had said goodbye. His children decided to, he had four children, they decided to go ahead and say their goodbyes and left my mom, me there for that night. Um, so it was his relationships, everything that he had maybe once put at the center or struggled to balance, it was gone. And so all that was left was Jesus and his supremacy, and it was beautiful. But second to that, because he is supreme, in that moment, he is sufficient. He, he does it all. Um, thank the Lord, literally, it's not up to us. Um, he paid the full price when we were still sinners and that blood he shed for us is worth it, and it was sufficient. Um, Jim was a captain in the Navy. He was a lawyer. He was very meticulous, very by the book, very detailed. And even at the very end, he wanted to do it right. Um, literally in the last hours of his life, um, when he knew it was, it was the end, um, I truly, I believe these were his last words. He just kept saying, what do I do? What do I do? And it was like, exactly. That is the point. Nothing. We do nothing. Even in that last moment, he wanted to do it just right. And I think we spend a lot of our lives saying, what do I do? What do I do? And I'm like, Jim nailed it. <laughs> his final words. Of that is the greatest news, is that there's nothing that we can do. We cannot add to this equation. Jesus doesn't expect us to. We're not worthy. He is the one that is the most worthy to reconcile us to God. Jesus delights to tell us, just like we did to Jim that day, nothing. You, you do nothing. Jesus says, I did it for you, and you just have to accept my gift. And it is so beautiful. And he is supreme, and he holds us, his most loved creation, in the palm of his hands forever, and he is sufficient to bring us home. I want to close by reading um, the words to the hymn, I love it, Rock of Ages. It seemed to fit this so perfectly. It says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I'll die. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on the throne, rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. And it's just so beautiful, and I challenge you to just cling to these words that Christ is supreme over all. And loves you dearly. And he is sufficient um, to save us. So let me pray. Dear Lord, I just thank you for all these women here tonight that want to know you and learn more about you and dig into your word. And we just praise you for these truths in this book about who Jesus is. And that we would constantly be reminded of that and cling to that. Um, and and really center our lives around that truth. That you are supreme and you are sufficient. And I just... Um, Thank you for all the many blessings um, that you have poured upon us. In Jesus' name. Amen.